Friends, we're continuing today in our sermon series, the book of Genesis, and we're currently in the middle of a story that I think many of you are familiar with. Even if you're not familiar with the Bible, I think you guys know this, and it's a story of Noah's Ark, right? It's a really popular story, but unfortunately, it's also a widely misunderstood one because it is kind of hard to grasp. And the part that's often most misunderstood about this passage is how God is portrayed throughout the story, right? It's really easy for us to kind of read the story of the flood and go, man, the God of the Bible is just really mean, right? He would wipe out everyone out like that. But, but if we actually read the story, we'll see that in Genesis 5 and 6, that the world at Noah's time, the world that Noah was living in was filled with so much violence, with so much cruelty, so much disorder that God would actually be a monster if he didn't put it to a stop. God would actually be a monster if he just let it go on. A a picture of the state of the world at the time, as we studied, was found in, or maybe depicted by, the guy named Lamech. Remember him? In Genesis chapter 5? He was an older man that killed a younger man, and then he bragged about it to his two wives by writing a poem about the murder. And it's like, if the world's filled with people who are getting applauded for a spoken word poem about an actual murder they just committed, it's like, maybe it's time to start over. (laughs) Maybe it's gone too far. You know, that's a a pretty messed up world. Because at this point, the world's not just flawed. You see, it's not just imperfect. What it is, is it's disordered. What do I mean by that? What's the difference? See, a flawed world, people might still sin and make mistakes, but at least after they sin and make mistakes, they would go, oh no, I sinned, I made a mistake, I'm so sorry. You see, the categories are still in the right order, meaning sin is still viewed as sin. Sin is still something to repent from. But if we live in a world where we sin and then we go, man, that was awesome. I'm going to write a poem about it. And people are going to applaud it because they love this stuff. At that point, it's not just flawed. It's disordered. Because sin is no longer viewed as sin. Sin is no longer something to repent from, but something to be applauded. That was Noah's world. Which begs the question, is our world today any different? Are there sins in our world? Are there sins in our city? Are there sins in our own heart that we not only ignore or encourage, but maybe perhaps even applaud? I think there are. And you know what this tells us? This tells us that our world out there and our world in here, they're not just flawed, they're disordered. And our passage will show us today that this disorder is actually the source of our unrest. The disorder of the current world is the reason why true, lasting rest feels like something that continually eludes us on this side of eternity. So how does God deal with it? How does God deal with the disordered unrest? Well, let's take a look at Noah's story, whose name means rest. This is God's word. 
Take from Genesis chapter 8, verse 1 to 22, the time when the flood started to subside. This is the word of God. But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark. And God made a wind blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. The fountains of the deep and the windows of the heavens were closed. The rain from the heavens was restrained, and the waters receded from the earth continually. At the end of 150 days, the waters had abated. And in the seventh month, on the seventeenth day of the month, the ark came to rest on the mountains of Ararat. And the waters continued to abate until the tenth month. And the tenth month, on the first day of the month, the tops of the mountains were seen. At the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window of the ark that he had made and sent forth a raven. It went to and fro until the waters were dried up from the earth. Then he set forth a dove from him to see if the waters had subsided from the face of the ground. But the dove had no place to set her foot. And she returned to him to the ark, for the waters were still in the face of the whole earth. So he put out his hand and took her and brought her into the ark with him. He waited another seven days. And again, he sent forth a dove out the ark, and the dove came back to him in the evening. And behold, in her mouth was a freshly plucked olive leaf. So Noah knew that the waters had subsided from the earth. Then he waited another seven days and sent forth the dove, and she did not return to him anymore. In the six hundred and first year, in the first month, the first day of the month, the waters were dried from the earth. And Noah removed the covering of the ark and looked, and behold, the face of the ground was dry. In the second month, on the 27th day of the month, the earth has dried out. Then God said to Noah, go out from the ark, you and your wife and your sons and your sons' wives with you. Bring out with you every living thing that is with you of all flesh, birds and animals and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, that they may swarm on the earth and be fruitful and multiply on the earth. So Noah went out and his sons and his wife and his sons' wives with him, every beast, every creeping thing and every bird, everything that moves on the earth, went out by families of the ark. Then Noah built an altar to the Lord and took some of, very, some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings to the altar. And when the Lord smelled the pleasing aroma, the Lord said in his heart, I will never again curse the ground because of man, for the intention of man's heart is evil from his youth. Neither will I ever again strike down every living creature as I have done. While the earth remains, seed time and harvest, cold and heat, summer and winter, day and night, shall not cease. Thus says the Lord, may he impress his eternal truths in our hearts forever. There are three things I want to point out from the passage. First, the connection between rest and order. Second, the potential of rest amidst disorder. And third, the altar of rest that will put our hearts back in order. All right? Three things. Let's start with the first point, the connection between rest and order. So we've seen this theme throughout the story of Noah as we've gone through it many, many times before because this is kind of the main point of the story, so it's repeated a lot, and it's repeated here again in Genesis chapter 8. And it's the point that Noah's story is all about God's promise of rest in new creation. God's promise of rest in new creation. And you see that theme of new creation here in Genesis 8. As we read the passage just now, maybe some of you caught this, but you saw a lot of the themes in Genesis chapter 1 and 2 when creation was first started, rewritten and restated here again in Genesis chapter 8. For example, 
Do you remember where the Garden of Eden was located at in Genesis 1 and 2? It was on a mountaintop of sorts, right? How do you know that? Because the rivers in the garden flowed out from the garden, meaning that the garden itself was on high ground because water flows downhill. Anyways, okay? It's on high ground. That's what we know. Now look at verse 4 here. Where did Noah's ark rest on when the waters resided? On top of a mountain, mimicking the Garden of Eden on high ground. Look at verses 11 to 12. Noah sent the dove out from the ark to see if the waters resided in seven-day increments. The world in Genesis 1 and 2 was created in a seven-day time frame. The animals that were going out of the ark in verses 17 to 19 is described in the same exact way as when they were first created in Genesis chapter 1. They crept on the earth. They swarmed the earth. That's all Genesis 1 and 2 language. Okay? They're also called to be fruitful and multiply here, which is the same original command that God gave them in Genesis chapter 1. You see the theme of recreation here in Genesis 8? The flood is God's work of recreating a messed up world. That's the point. But what makes this world in Genesis 8 so much better than the old world of Genesis chapter 3 to 7 after sin entered it? It's order. Order, where do we see that in the passage? Stick with me here. This is going to take a little bit of brain work, but I think, I think it's worth it, okay? Look at verse 1. It says, But God remembered Noah and all the beasts and all the livestock that were with him in the ark, and God made a wind, or in Hebrew, a ruch, to blow over the earth, and the waters subsided. So picture this in your mind. A ruch, a wind of God, blew over a chaotic world that was filled with water, and it put it in order. Jog your memory back to Genesis 1. Does that picture sound familiar to you? Think back to when God first created the world in Genesis chapter 1, specifically verse 2. The world was a chaotic place filled with what? Water. And do you remember what hovered over the waters and began to put things in order? Land, you go here. Large bodies of water, you go there. Animals, you crawl here. Fish that swarm, you go there. Who did that? The Spirit of God hovered over the waters. And guess what the Hebrew word for the Spirit of God was in Genesis chapter 1, verse 2? The same exact word that you see here in Genesis chapter 8, verse 1. It was the ruch of God. Here's the point. Let's take a look at Genesis 1 to 8 as a whole big story, okay? In the beginning, the ruch of God put a chaotic, water-filled world into order. Sky, you go here. Large bodies of water, you go there. Land, you go here. Birds, you go here. Animals that crawl, you go here. Fish that swim and swarm, you go here. And there was rest. But when mankind sinned in Genesis 3, you know what we pretty much said? We said, we don't want order. We want disorder, right? We don't want God to be up there and man to be down here. We want to be God. We want to decide for ourselves what's good and evil. Hence, they eat, ate the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil. We want to be God. Tear down the order, we said. So God responded, fine. You don't want order? All right. I'll take away the order. Large bodies of water, you know what? 
don't worry about the order anymore. They said they don't want it. Go ahead. Flood the earth. Hence, a flood in Genesis chapter 8. That's the picture. The event now known as Noah's flood is God putting a stop to a violently disordered world by giving it what it wants. You want disorder? Enjoy. Have at it. But in Genesis chapter 8, God in his mercy didn't leave the world to fully drown in their own desire for disorder. The Ruch of God once again appeared and reordered the chaotic world. He came and once again placed the water back to its orderly, proper location, away from the land, which is what happened when the water subsided in verse 1. And now, once again, we have rest. Rest, which is another big theme of this passage. The water was put back in order, we see, in verse 1, because God remembered Noah, whose name means rest. The ark, which was the only place of rest for God's people in that chaotic world, rested, look at verse 4, rested on the mountaintop. Another view of rest. In the original Hebrew, it's a play on words with Noah's name. The dove, in verse 9, that went out to the world, couldn't find a place to set her foot, it says. But if you literally translate it in the Hebrew, it says she can't find a place to rest her foot. So she returned to the ark. Here's what the passage is saying. The only way we can experience true rest is if God once again puts our disordered world, our disordered hearts back in order, which is what heaven is. That's what it is. And he will do that. That's a promise here. But until that day comes, we won't be able to experience this kind of true, lasting, unadulterated kind of rest that our souls really long for. It's just not going to happen. Not fully. Not yet. Not now. That's why even when things are going relatively well in our lives, we have this low-grade level of anxiety that just subtly lingers on. You know what I mean? I think you do. Why is that? I felt it when I was single. So I told myself, you know what? Surely when I'm married, it'll go away. It didn't. Then I said, you know what? Surely it'll disappear when I have my own family. In other words, kids. It didn't. It multiplied. Then I said, you know what? Maybe it's a career thing. You know? When the church plan is more secure, then I'll feel at rest. And now I'm married with two kids and a relatively secure church. And I don't feel any more at rest now than I was when I was careerless and single. (laughs) It's just, you know, why do we keep living in the future like that? (laughs) Why is there always this version of a perfect world that we tell ourselves, once I get there, you know, I'll have rest? Maybe, just maybe, because there is a future world that we're originally made for. 
C.S. Lewis said it so well. He said, If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. Our souls long for rest, but it refuses to fully fall in it because it senses the primordial disorder of Noah's world still exists today. And it longs, it longs for the day when God will make all things new. But it sure seems like he's taking his sweet time, isn't he? It's like, when will this happen? We've been waiting for a long time and we're just doomed to roam the earth in unrest until it happens? Our passage says, no, we're not. Leads us to our second point. The potential for rest, even amidst the current disorder, there is rest, or an appetizer of it, at least. This tedious wait that Noah endured here, right, as he waited for the flood to reside. That's another main point of, of the passage. It says, only at the end of 150 days, verse 3 says, the water abated. Then he had to wait another 10 months, and then the top of the mountains were seen. Then at the end of 40 days, Noah opened the window, then finally saw the water started to, and it's like, the point is, it's a long time. It's going to take a long time for God to reorder the world. He'll do it. Don't worry about that, but it'll take a minute. And the wait, my goodness, sometimes it feels unbearable. And we're not the first ones to feel this, right? The psalmist in Psalm 13 literally cried out, how long, O Lord? It's like, buddy, you're still in the beginning of the story. I don't want to break it to you. It's going to be a while. Paul in 1 Corinthians cried out, Jesus, come back quickly. Even creation itself in Romans chapter 8 is described to be groaning with pains of childbirth, awaiting for this new creation to take place. Even the trees are restless, the Bible so poetically puts. So what do we do, you know, in the wait? Are we just doomed, restlessly roaming until Jesus comes back? We're not. We actually find a very interesting imagery of rest here from Noah's dove. Now, the dove in the Old Testament, it's often used as a symbol for God's people. You see this in Hosea chapter 7. You see this in Hosea chapter 11. And this dove in verse 8 to 12 was sent out by Noah to roam the earth to see whether or not God has finished reordering it if the flood subsided. But after roaming the earth, it came back in verse 9, having no place to rest her foot, it says. And here's what the commentary I used said. The dove, she looked for another Noah outside of the ark but finding none, she returned to the Noah she knew. And then look at the detailed description of just how gently and warmly Noah welcomed the dove back into the ark. Look at verse 9. He put his hand out, took her, and brought her into the ark with him. And again, the commentary I'm using says, the description of the return and admission of the dove back into the ark is unsurpassed in the whole Bible. In its tenderness and beauty of imagination, he put his hand out, took her, and brought her in the ark with him. Why the gentle, intricate detail of Noah's receiving arms here? It's the point, us friends, God's people today, to someone else's arms that the Bible says we can find rest in amidst this chaotic world. 
Whose arms? Whose arms does Noah point to here, friends? Who is the true and better Noah, our true rest? It's Jesus. Come, all you who are exhausted and tired and heavy laden, I will give you rest, he said. Okay? But how does that, like, practically work, right? Because Christ has no physical hands right now, currently on earth, to welcome his people back into, right? Does he? Does he? Who's called to be the hands and feet of Christ on earth until he comes back, friends? He does. It's the church. The church is meant to be a place of rest and order for God's people as we suffer the inevitable unrest and disorder of the chaotic world out there. And all of God's people say, no, we don't say amen to that. We don't, because we hear that and we're like, what church, Tez? <laughs> like, surely even you see how crazy you're sounding right, right now. You're, you're telling me that there exists a church on earth right now that fits the imagery of Noah's ark and Jesus' gentle hands. Where? Show it to me. A place of rest from chaos? If anything, the church is the center for chaos. And CCC, I mean, you know, we try, but we fail. I try, but I fail. Devin, Riza, you're going to try, and you're not going to do it perfectly. No church on earth does this perfectly. But maybe... Maybe perfection isn't the answer, at least not on this side of eternity. If we can't be perfect, maybe the call of this, of this passage is for us to at least be ordered. Remember the theme of our passage? It's the disorder and unrest in the world out there versus the order and rest in the ark and eventually a new creation. Okay, what, what's the difference then bef- between perfection and order? Well, we touched on it a little bit in our introduction earlier. A group of imperfect people, look, we might still fall into sin, okay? We might still make mistakes. But when we do, if we're ordered, we would have the right order of categories still in place, meaning sin will still be treated as sin. So if we sin, we won't ignore it. We won't encourage it. We won't applaud it like Lamech did in his disordered world. What will we do? We'll acknowledge it. We'll confess it. We'll repent from it. That's how an ordered community lives. How does an ordered community respond to sins that are committed to them? They don't punch back. They don't post a comment back. They won't condemn back. No. They forgive, they long suffer, they endure, they do whatever is best for the edifying of God's people and the beauty of his gospel. Maybe that's what we're called to be right now if perfection is unattainable. Be ordered. Be ordered that we may be an ark of rest for God's people. We at least have to have that. Keep God on high, keep man down low. Love the things he loves, hate the things he hates, pursue the things he values, don't be fooled by the world's values. Order. 
The problem is the church doesn't do that, do we? Our values, our priorities, it's all over the place. It's like the world. We applaud the love of money as blessing and, and the suffering for the gospel as a curse. Disorder. We applaud watering down the gospel as strategic and prudent. And we call faithful orthodoxy old school and backwards. We applaud the idolatry of work and burnout, especially in the church, as faithfulness. And we treat godly contentment as laziness. We applaud the wide road as beautiful. We cancel the narrow road as legalistic. We applaud power as a form of greatness. And we mistake meekness with weakness. We are disordered. And the world looks at us today and it goes. It's no different in here than it is out there. It's just unsafe in here as it is out there. We do not live to the analogy of Jesus' hands and Noah's ark. We're just as chaotic, if not at times more chaotic than the world out there. So then why, why in the world does God not just include us in the flood? If there's no difference, why doesn't he just swallow us up, wipe us out like everyone else? Brings us to our last point. The altar of rest that will put our hearts back in order. This is why. You see Noah waiting, waiting, waiting the long and tedious wait. Finally, the dove, after being sent out for the third time, does not return in verse 12. Meaning, it's finally here. The work of reordering the world has finished now, and the flood has finally subsided. And the restful order that was experienced in the ark is now a reality everywhere else in the world. It's safe now for God's people to come out. That's the picture here. Which is what they did. Verse 15 and 19, Noah and his family, along with all the other creatures inside of the ark, came out of the ark to the world. But here's what I want us to see. Look at the first thing Noah did. The first thing, as soon as he stepped out outside of the ark, in verse 20, what did he do? He built an altar to the Lord and took some of every clean animal and some of every clean bird and offered burnt offerings to the altar. The very first thing Noah did when he exited the ark was take sacrificial animals and offer them up as a burnt offering to the Lord. And when the aroma of Noah's sacrifice reached the Lord, it says that it was a pleasing aroma for him. Now, you might have guessed it at this point, but in the Hebrew, if you translate the phrase, a pleasing aroma, it literally means here, a restful fragrance. Yet another theme of rest. You ever come home from a long day of intense work and you smell the aroma of a fragrant burnt candle and it relieved the tension. It's a metaphor here because God does not have nasal cavities, but the picture is that Noah's obedience to God, his building of the ark despite of the world's ridicule, everyone made fun of him. Noah's obedience to God, even when it cost him everything, all of his sacrifice is an aroma that put God's wrath to rest. And if at this point, this passage isn't already right now screaming at you, Jesus, I don't know what will. The resemblance is uncanny. 
the true and better, is he not? Just like Noah, Jesus obeyed God when everyone else ridiculed him. Just like Noah, Jesus stayed faithful even when it cost him everything. And just like Noah, at the end, Jesus offered up a sacrifice on an altar that soothed God's wrath. But unlike Noah, the sacrifice that Jesus offered weren't animals. What did Jesus Christ offer up on that cross to put God's wrath to rest? His own life. Okay, but that still doesn't quite answer the question of why God would spare us, the church. All this tells us is that God should spare Jesus, right? The righteous one, the true Noah, not us. Well, friends, here's the good news. Go back to verse 1 in our passage. I want us to notice something. The flood stopped, it says. Why? Because God remembered Noah. God remembered Noah. That's the reason why the flood stopped. But then, without missing a single beat, in the very same breath, God continues in the very same verse and says, and all the beasts and all the livestock and everything else in the ark. God remembered Noah and everyone and everything he represents in the ark in one breath. It's like there is an inseparable union between Noah and every other creature he represents in the ark. You can't cut them apart. You can't separate them. So let me ask you again. Why will God spare you, friends, from his wrath? Why will God spare me from his wrath? Because those who believe in Christ is inseparable from him. God will spare us because when he thinks of Jesus in the same nanosecond without skipping a beat or taking a breath or getting a pause he thinks of you the body can't drown if the head is above water you can't take the head out of the water and leave the body to drown who is the head representative of the church friends Jesus We will survive the flood of God's wrath, not because anyone in here is any better than anyone out there. We'll survive the flood because God the Father, in His mercy, called us to enter into the ark. Because God the Spirit united us to our true Noah, who is Christ the Son. And Christ the Son put out His hand, took us, and brought us into the ark with him. That's the gospel. Look at us. None of us deserves to be here, and you know it. But that's the gospel. And if we want this place to be an ordered place of rest, to be an ark for God's people to rest in till glory comes, We must never grow bored of this gospel. Look, if you think that what I just said, this good news, is just an old wives' tale, 
if you think this is just something we say to like make us feel better about ourselves when we live our lives, of course your life's not going to change. Of course the priorities of your heart will remain unscathed. But if you really believe what his word says, that on the cross, God willingly drowned in his own wrath so that you may live. Like, (laughs) if that's real, how can you say you believe that and God not take first place in the order of your heart? How in the world does the priorities of your life remain the same? How in the world can you bear not leaving everything behind for the one who died for you? That's what the life of someone with an ordered heart looks like. They say, take the world, give me Jesus. And until the gospel shocks us that much, friends, our priorities will remain disordered. And the world out there will look like the world in here. And this place will never be a place of rest for anyone. My prayer, friends, is that God, by His grace, will never let our hearts grow cold of this gospel. And that through it, somehow, He'll use the Spirit to reorder the loves of our hearts slowly but surely so that we may be a place of refuge and rest in this chaotic world that needs it. Davin Riza, that's a prayer we have as well for the church you guys will plant. And hope so, friends, as we become that, Jesus will continue to put out his hand. He'll continue to take anyone who would receive this offer of mercy into the ark till the chaos subsides, until the world is made new. May we be that kind of church, or at least try our best to have an ordered heart. Let's pray. Father, what a lofty call and picture of what the body of Christ is meant to be in this chaotic, disordered world. And no church today or in history has ever reached to that perfection. But may you, by your mercy, help us here in this church and other churches in the city to at least reach a point of order that we may then become a place of rest and not a place of chaos for your people who you've called to be shepherded in your local church. Help us see our imperfection. Let us see the mercy of Christ as we continue in the Lord's Supper in our time of worship today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.